you are listening to the transforming india podcast jointly brought to you by the deepak and neeraj center on indian economic policies at columbia university and the times of india i am arvind panagaria director of the raj center and professor of economics at columbia my co-host on this podcast is professor praveen krishna he is a professor of international economics and business at johns hopkins university Welcome, Praveen. Hi, Arvind. Delighted to join you for episode 16 of this podcast. The Transforming India podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe and follow it on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Arvind, we now have some concrete numbers on GDP following the onset of COVID-19. The Ministry of Statistics and Program Implementation, or MOSPI, has estimated that India's GDP during the April to June quarter in 2020, or what is commonly referred to as Q1 of FY21, has fallen by 23.9% over its level in the same quarter a year ago. This is by far the largest single quarter decline on record in India. Maybe in this episode we can discuss the origins of the decline and what actions if any the government of India and the Reserve Bank of India should take to bring growth back on track. That's a great idea Praveen. As far as the economy is concerned this is a subject on everyone's mind right now. To get us started let me first explain what the sharp decline in the GDP represents and what it does not represent. Many well-informed commentators argue that the decline represents a fundamental weakness in the economy they link this fall to the declining trend in quarterly gdp which started in the first quarter of 2018-19 or fy19 some observers even connect the decline to demonetization and faulty implementation of the goods and services tax that is the gst let me say that these suggestions border on the absurd Critics of demonetization have failed to produce any credible evidence of the kind of impact they were predicting. The truth of the matter is that GDP growth in the year 2016-17, which ended four months after demonetization, turned out to be 8.3 percent, the highest since 2010-11. One can perhaps make the argument that demonetization and GST combined to produce a small deceleration in growth. during the last quarter of 2016-17 and first quarter of 2017-18 but growth started to accelerate in the second quarter of 2017-18 again indeed by the last quarter of that year growth had reached a high of 8.2% so even the declining trend during the eight quarters preceding covid-19 cannot be linked to demonetization and gst that decline is largely the result of the stress in the financial sector which itself resulted from the long standing problem of non performing assets or npas arvind let me add here that the evidence from other countries reinforces the basic argument you're making during the april to june quarter of the current year countries in which covid-19 hit economic activity hard have seen their gdp decline at rates comparable to that in india For instance, GDP fell by 22% in Spain and roughly the same in the UK. Italy, where COVID-19 had arrived earlier than other European countries and therefore also saw the lockdown lifted earlier, 
saw that its GDP fell by about 17.7%. The decline in the United States at 9.5% was lower for two reasons. One was that only the state of New York was majorly impacted during the first COVID-19 wave in the April-June quarter, and New York accounts for 7.6% of total U.S. GDP for 2019. And two, the lockdown in the United States has been much less severe than in countries such as India. Praveen, given that India was already facing challenges in its financial sector at the start of 2021 financial year, one can plausibly argue that growth during April-June quarter would have been low even without the COVID-19 shock. But claiming anything worse, such as even a mildly negative growth rate in the absence of an external shock such as COVID-19 would be chutzpah. Indeed, the decisive role of coronavirus onslaught in India can also be seen in the relative performance of different sectors of the economy. Sectors that were impacted the most by the lockdown also saw the sharpest decline. Construction fell by 50%, trade, hotels, transport, and communication by 47%, manufacturing by 39.3%, and mining and querying by 23.3%. On the other hand, agriculture, which had been largely left out of the lockdown, grew at its trend rate of about 3.4%, as if no interruption in economic activity had taken place. Financial, real estate, and professional services, which had the greatest potential for online delivery, saw a decline of only 5.3%. Electricity, which runs on transmission and distribution lines, also saw a fall of just 7%. Public administration, defense, and other services declined by 10.3%. So sectors that were not subject to a severe lockdown did quite okay, uh, not certainly not quite as bad, and sectors that were subject to a severe lockdown were the ones that did poorly, indicating that the shock came largely from COVID, that the decline in the growth that we have observed largely is due to COVID. Arvind, I think what this analysis tells us is that we need not be pessimistic about India's post-COVID-19 growth prospects. Some analysts have raised fears that in the post-COVID-19 world, we may return to growth levels observed in the 1980s or, at best, the 1990s. These fears, I think, are greatly exaggerated and are without foundation. There are some early indications that after India began relaxing the movement of people and restoring transport services, the economy has been picking up. For instance, the monthly manufacturing purchasing managers index, or the PMI, rose from 27.4 in April to 52 in August. Even PMI in services rose to 41.8 in August from 33.7 in June. Sales of electronic items have also seen a jump of 40% in August 2020 over their level in August 2019. Trains to destinations such as Delhi, Mumbai, and other major cities in Gujarat and so on, which play host to migrant workers, have been operating at 100% capacity. These developments suggest that the first thing India needs to do to return the economy to its original path of 7% plus growth is to create conditions for workers to return to work. That, of course, means vaccinating 60% of the population against COVID-19 as soon as a vaccine reaches the approval stage. I completely agree with you, Praveen, on this point. The first and most important thing the government needs to do is to create conditions for all workers to return to work as early as possible. 
Given our current trajectory of COVID-19 cases, it is unlikely that this will happen without vaccinating 60% or more of the population against COVID-19. Today, advanced investment in vaccine manufacturing infrastructure probably carries the highest rate of return. Even making the conservative assumption that absent COVID-19, India's GDP in April-June quarter would have been the same as in the same quarter last year, the country lost more than 125 billion US dollars during that quarter alone. Each extra quarter that COVID-19 holds back workers from returning to work, the country loses billions of dollars. For this reason, the government should invest 5 to $7 billion to create infrastructure that can rapidly manufacture four or five of the most promising vaccines. Even if only two of these vaccines eventually pan out, we would have more than recovered our investment through a speedier recovery of the economy, not to mention the benefit of restoring normalcy to the lives of 1.35 billion people. Arvind, you make a powerful argument for investing liberally in the manufacturing of vaccines. Of course, as workers return to work, both the government and the Reserve Bank of India will need to take measures that help to speed up the recovery. But before we get to those measures, let me state that the strict lockdown in response to the COVID-19 threat had administered an unprecedented shock to both demand and supply in India. The dominant view at the time was that the demand shock would overwhelm the supply shock, leading the vast majority of analysts to recommend a large fiscal stimulus. If you recall, Arvind, we were then among a handful of commentators to recommend that the stimulus be held at just the level necessary to provide food and shelter to everyone during the lockdown. In the event, the government chose a modest fiscal stimulus, and the sectoral pattern of GDP growth during April to June clearly points to the dominance of a supply shock. High inflation rates of 7.2% in April, 6.3% in May, and 6.1% in June also support the view that demand did not turn out to be the binding constraint on growth during the quarter. The decision by the government to go easy on the fiscal stimulus and our view on the subject are therefore both vindicated. Absolutely, Praveen. Before we run out of time, let me then turn to what the RBI might do in the coming months to lend its support to the economy. As the economy gradually returns to its pre-COVID-19 trajectory, it should err on the side of supporting aggregate demand rather than containing inflation. This means easing the interest rates further. Rising supply of output would help ameliorate inflation in any case. But even if not, it is critical for the central bank not to thwart economic recovery by making credit more expensive and thus clamping down on investment demand. In a similar vein, the RBI must prevent the rupee from appreciating in response to robust inflows of foreign capital. It had made admirable progress in this direction until April this year, but the gains it made by letting the rupee depreciate have been partially reversed in recent months. Accelerated monetary easing by developed countries in the wake of COVID-19 has led capital to flow in considerably larger volumes to emerging markets, especially India. The result has been an appreciation of the rupee. In the coming months, foreign capital inflows are likely to continue at a fast pace. It is important for RBI not to let these flows force further appreciation of the rupee. As workers continue to return to work and economic activity picks up further, 
India will need to recapture its share in the world markets for which a competitive exchange rate is crucial. Let me add, Praveen, that according to the data that are coming out from the World Trade Organization, trade is now picking up much faster than it had been predicted, meaning international trade data are showing recovery of trade. So therefore, India must also do things that are necessary for us to capture at least the original share in the exports. Arvind, given that the RBI must worry about inflation as well, and so will need to tread cautiously on stimulating demand through a lower interest rate, we will also need, I think, fiscal policy to do some of the work. Based on evidence of a lack of demand response flowing from the modest transfers it had made back in March and April, the government expressed concern that any further transfers may not actually result in a demand expansion. And there is some truth in this, some basis for this concern. Therefore, the better course for the government will be to create demand through increased infrastructure spending. Given that new infrastructure projects will take time before they translate into large spending, the government should speed up infrastructure projects that are already underway. This will not only increase spending directly, it will also create employment opportunities. Increased employment in turn will help restore confidence among households as consumers and may help unlock their currently restrained spending. Another area in which the government needs to use its fiscal resources, Praveen, is recapitalization of banks. Restructuring loans would surely give us time to sort out viable investments from non-viable ones, but it cannot prevent many loans from going bad eventually. Therefore, banks' non-performing assets or NPAs, which are already large, are certain to get larger still in another year or so. That would mean further weakening of the financial sector. Between 2014 and 2017, India hesitated and delayed bank recapitalization on an adequate scale. It paid a heavy price for this mistake with GDP growth in 2019-20, witnessing its sharpest decline since the global financial crisis. Currently, the government has talked about setting aside 200 billion rupees for recapitalization. This is reminiscent of 700 billion rupees that the government had allocated for this purpose in 2015. Later, when credit growth of public sector banks collapsed, the amount had to be raised to 2 trillion rupees. But it was too late by that time. The economy paid the price in terms of its growth rate dipping to 4.2% in 2019-20. As the economy moves towards normalcy post-COVID-19, the country must not repeat this mistake. Rather than hesitate and wait, the government must move decisively to recapitalize the banks preemptively. If India is to avoid a repeat of its 2016-17 credit collapse, this is the time to act. Arvind, while we recommend these extra expenditures, it's important also, I think, to address the issue of fiscal resources. Even without the additional expenditures we have suggested, due to a sharp decline in tax revenues, the fiscal deficit in 2020-21 is predicted to rise to 13% of GDP. That deficit will raise the debt-to-GDP ratio from its current level of 72% to 85%. Increased debt, in turn, will bring significantly large interest payments in future years, limiting the government's ability to spend on education, health, and defense. A way out of this fiscal conundrum, I think, is to greatly accelerate the sale of public sector enterprises and monetize public assets such as roads, bridges, ports, airports, and transmission lines. Such a policy offers us a rare opportunity to kill two birds with a stone. The government will get much needed revenue, while public enterprises and public assets will come to perform considerably more efficiently in private hands. 
While asset monetization has seen some progress recently, the sale of public sector enterprises is yet to take off. It is time that the Prime Minister holds the officials responsible for these sales accountable. There are many listed enterprises in which the government stake is 60% or less. These enterprises can be passed on to private hands by simply selling 10% or fewer shares. Officials face hardly any risk of the kind that may characterize the sales of unlisted enterprises whose valuation may be a challenge. Those are great points, Praveen. This more or less completes our discussion of how to interpret the sharp decline in GDP in the April-June quarter and what the government needs to do in the short run to return the economy to its original trajectory of 7% plus growth. Since we have a few minutes remaining in the podcast, let me take this opportunity to note that from a long-term perspective, the government has been actively enacting numerous reforms. At the beginning of the just-ended parliamentary session, two bills on homeopathy and Indian systems of medicine were passed. Taking into account the National Medical Commission bill, which was passed in an earlier session, we now have a full reformed legal framework for building medical education in India. Indeed, the National Medical Commission Act has already also been notified and the commission members are now being appointed. This is a particular satisfaction for me since the Niti Aayog, in close consultation with the ministries of health and Ayush, had piloted the three bills during my time at the institution. In this recently ended parliamentary session, the parliament has also passed two very important bills on marketing of agricultural produce by farmers. Additionally, it has amended the Essential Commodities Act to limit its use only to emergency situations. For more than 50 years, farmers were required by law to sell their produce in designated government mandis or marketplaces to wholesalers. These wholesalers have had a long history of forming cartels in each mandi, which allowed them to purchase the produce at below competitive prices. The newly passed bills by the parliament now fully unshackle the farmers. They can sell their produce to anyone, anywhere. Marketing in agricultural produce will now finally see a renaissance. As it happens, these are also reforms that were recommended by the Niti Aayog in its 2015 report of the Task Force on Agricultural Development that I had headed. The Prime Minister had appointed this task force at Niti Aayog's first Governing Council meeting. And lastly, Praveen, I should add that both you and I have for long advocated the labor law reforms. And as the Parliament ended its session, it also passed three labor codes, which make pretty good progress in reforming labor laws in India. And more importantly, they also reset the labor laws in a way that future reforms of labor laws will now become easier. So a lot of good news in this parliamentary session for those of us, Praveen, who have been advocating these reforms for quite some time. Indeed, these are really tremendous developments for India's future, Arvind. And my heartiest congratulations on the important role that your work at Niti Aayog during 2015-2017 played in piloting the reforms that are continuing to be implemented. Perhaps we should return to take full stock of these reforms by the Modi government and their implications for India's long-term growth in a future episode. Well, it appears that that's all the time we have for today's episode of Transforming India podcast. Signing off, this is Praveen Krishna. And this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca McGillivray. 
at insights at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.